America is like the last best chance against the one world state. A strong America is the one thing that prevents a sort of Chinese takeover of the world or just uh, in less charismatic fashion, the world just being run by Brussels and sort of European decline. I think if America as, as a nation distinct from other nations falls, you get to this place in 20 or 30 years or maybe a lot sooner where it's just the one world state and sort of independence and individual freedom are squashed out. That's mm-hmm. the mob. The mob wins. And that's what we're trying to prevent. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Kid Rocky, a.k.a. Rabbi Cantlose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Blake Masters. Now, he's the co-author of the popular business book, Zero to One, with Peter Thiel. And he's also the COO at Thiel Capital. Now, what's wild is Blake has all this tech stuff going on, but he is now running for U.S. Senator in Arizona. If you've ever been curious about the similarities between running a political campaign and a startup, you are going to love this episode, plus a bunch of behind the scenes of what it takes to actually win in politics. A quick disclaimer, I'm not here endorsing any of your political views or my political views. I just thought Blake was super interesting, uh, and I really appreciated him coming on the show. You can learn more about him at blakemasters.com. In this conversation, you're going to learn three gigantic things. Number one, why politicians have to do this one thing that sucks. Number two, the advantage of doing things that don't scale. And three, social media is a powerful tool, but how most politicians use it incorrectly. You're going to learn those three things, plus a lot of surprising ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash okdork and my newsletter. I put out exclusive content just for subscribers. You can go to okdork.com to subscribe. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Ryan Hout of the USA. He left saying love Noah's energy and sincerity. After hitting a rut in my marketing career, I stumbled on Noah Kagan and have been soaking up his podcast and video ever since. Damn, man, that was really sweet, man. I appreciate that, Ryan. I hope you're doing excellent and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, just leave a review wherever you listen to the show. I check every single one of them. How are you? Good. Yeah. Good to see is you. it just crazy? Uh, it is. It is. It's nonstop. But I also, everyone always asks, like, what's the most surprising thing? Like, what have you learned? And I think I knew it was going to be crazy going in. I think I knew it was going to be nonstop. Okay. I knew people were going to lie about me. I knew left-wing media won't like my candidacy, you know. Uh, I knew a lot of the time was going to be spent fundraising. I knew that was going to be a slog. So I actually feel like I had realistic expectations going in. So I'm not like, shocked, but yeah, it's, it's wild. Yeah. What's not surprised? <laughs> Is there anything not surprised? I mean, it's a lot of work, man. I'm, I'm like, tired me out um, of hanging out with you. I'm, I mean, I guess, okay, so I'm pleasantly surprised, I guess, at, at how much I actually enjoy it. Like, it is fun. And I think you can tell, like, when a candidate's out there having fun, and you can tell when they're just, like, suffering through it, right? I think a lot of people actually don't like people, right? I mean, it's just classic introvert, extrovert. <laughs> and um, I think I'm discovering I'm actually more extroverted than I thought. Yeah. Because I'll go and go to these grassroots events, and there's, like, 150 people there, and I try to meet everybody. And then I'm usually, like, breaking down tables and chairs at the end with the hosts. Um, like I, <laughs> but I like that. Yeah. And so like, yeah, I'm tired at the end of the day, but in a macro sense, it's like get up and do it again the next day. And this is fun and important. And yeah, man, I do it. Putting in the work. Yeah, what, yeah. what What is a day like? What was today like? Today was, um, actually got eight hours of sleep. Nice. Usually I don't because usually, uh, I'm either just going to bed way too late, getting up too early, or if I'm back home in Tucson, I got three little kids. So they wake up at 530 AM, right? But I actually got some sleep, woke up, uh, hit the gym for just 20 minutes. That's all I can spare these days. Wow. And then fundraising phone calls. Hours. <laughs> really? <laughs> phone calls, yeah. What, what's that like? Today, my call sheet was uh, people who had um, come to events before and uh, either had, had donated generously, but not the max. And so there's still some more that I can go and ask them for. Uh, or people who had come to events, um, you know, to meet me, but hadn't yet donated. Okay. And that's an easier call sheet than a cold call sheet because like these people have all seen me. I can remember like almost all of them actually shaking their hand and chatting with them a little bit. Yeah, much easier calls when it's like, hey, good to see you, man. So, oh, so many hours of that you today? Three and a half. Three. And then what do these calls go like? Uh, hi, it's Noah. Uh, well, a lot of voicemails. Uh, if people don't have me in their book, like, they, okay. who answers the phone these days? So, so the voicemails are like, you know, whatever. Hey, Robbie, it's great to meet you at so-and-so's house three weeks ago. Um, usually I can remember something about the conversation. Sometimes, okay. Half the time. So I, I just, you know, work that in both because that's fun and to show them that I know who they are. Yeah. And uh, I thank them for their support, you know, if they've donated already. And I tell them, like, hey, I'm racing against the end of the year fundraising deadline. And 
hate to have to hit you up for more money, but like, would you please consider donating to the campaign? And it's so interesting because like a lot of candidates, I think really struggle with that. Like even me internally, sometimes I, it's like awkward to ask for money. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm used to this venture capital context where, you know, usually <laughs> on the other side of the table, but like I've raised venture before and you try to find like the one or two or three correct partners and the checks are big. And so like having to call hundred people a day asking for 500, 3,000, whatever, you know. Is that weird? Because you you were dealing in millions and now you're like, hey, can I have hundred bucks? It's a, it's a, well, it's funny because <laughs> like working with Peter Thiel, right? Like a billionaire. I've always uh, been pretty good at maintaining two sets of sort of price <laughs> registers in my head, you know? <laughs> it's like, I know what a Peter Thiel rug and sofa costs <laughs> when, when we buy a new house or something. And I know what a Blake Masters rug and sofa costs. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's just very different. So I'm, I'm used to that. But yeah, this is, um, it's just important though. Like I wish fundraising weren't so important in politics, but it really is. If only because like people in DC and insiders, like they look at these fundraising numbers and maybe they focus on them too much, but we know that it's a real proxy for momentum. Like if you can get a thousand people to give you a thousand bucks, you're probably just a way better candidate than if you can write yourself a $1 million check, even though it's still a million bucks. Yeah. For a lot of my audiences, entrepreneurs, will starting, growing businesses, any advice on how to ask? Or what For money? Yeah. Or what you've learned about trying to do these pitches? Just got to do it. I mean, there's the, whole, there's the old build adage, right? If you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. <laughs> and look, this is where, I mean, dude, when I, you know, people are trying to, to, you know, pitch us, pitch Peter on a startup, and they come and they say the round is oversubscribed, and we don't really need the money, and I'm not even sure we could carve out something for you, but like, let me know if you're interested, we could try. And uh, sometimes I'm, I think I'm pretty good at seeing through when that's just like a salesmanship strategy, like when it's a lie, it's like, okay, that's not charismatic. But when I suspect it's true, then I have the FOMO, you know, it, it like works and they're asking for advice, you know, like, and I'm like, well, yeah, but can we get in? And if people just come and they say like, I really want Peter to invest in this, I have no other investor. Yeah, sure. So there's something to it when you want money, ask for advice. But I think uh, just being direct, people don't love being hit up for money. Even when you're a billionaire venture capitalist, you know, people don't love being hit up for money in a political donation context. I tell people like, dude, I'm so grateful for whatever you can do. And like literally every thousand dollars, and there's like a $5,800 limit in my race, right? That's the federal limit for how much one person can give. I'm like any thousand bucks you can do towards that, like meaningfully helps my campaign. So I'm sorry to have to hit you up. I've known you for 15 years, but like, come on. Yeah. Make an investment, right? And for the most part, people are pretty good. They know. So yeah, just be direct. Asking for money sucks, but like, don't shy away from it. No, it's strong, man. I think also just do it. Like you said, it's, uh, I've noticed in business, that's kind of what it all comes down to at the end of the day. Yeah. You're saying, give me money for this thing I think is valuable for you and vice versa. Yep. My first job out of college, I was at Box when Box was an early stage. I was the number three on the, on the sales team. And, um, the company, I think 30 or 35 people at that point. And, uh, you know, we, we love the inbound leads because they're just warm, but like there was a lot of cold calling and I'm glad I didn't have to do that for most of my career, but it's funny. I'm back in this place where, yeah, I'm having to make a lot of cold calls <laughs> for a thousand, for a thousand or hopefully 5,800, hopefully, hopefully 5,800, but you know, you call these like, uh, rich Republican donors and yeah, they've supported, you know, Donald Trump or prior Republican presidents, but like, they don't know who I am. And they often live in a different state and they maybe just like finish their breakfast, you know? And so you always feel like you're bothering somebody, Yeah. but it's also like, if what's, what's the alternative? Like if I don't do that, I won't be as good as I should be at raising money and my candidacy is weaker. And it's like, I think I'm the best one in Arizona to actually win back the seat. And I think the seat matters for like the future of the country. So like, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but shut up Blake and like make the damn phone call, you know? I guess I'm surprised. I didn't think of the, how impactful it is. Also, it's kind of like a, it's a vote. It's like a vote. Totally. What, what is the money? Where does that money go? Well, we're not spending much of it. I mean, I'm probably spending 40 grand a month just on staff salaries, right? But that's pretty lean, like super lean. I mean, I raised a million bucks last quarter. I'll try to get a million bucks this quarter. The money piles up right now and you save it for basically getting the message out. Some combination of digital advertising and, and TV is what two thirds of most political budgets go to. TV ads specifically like, you know, two months before the election slash one day before the election. And you've seen all the ads. It's just the TV, the TV yeah. those are very expensive. Um, but they do move the needle. What I'm happy about right now is I'm not having to spend money 
but I've been cutting these ads just, uh, you know, we make them my friend volunteers and we bought a nice camera and, but that's it. Like we're not paying consultants. Yeah. It's a great setup like, this. like you have. And, um, we just try to actually invest in the writing and try to come up with like crisp articulations of issues and try to generate some controversy. And we've gotten some of these videos to go viral, uh, without having to pay for the, the distribution. I wonder what the correlation or I don't know what the stats are for like how much fundraise to win ratio. Well, there's not a tight correlation. Um, very often, like the wealthiest, you know, self-funding candidates in a race, it, they don't work. Like it, it doesn't work. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton outraised Donald Trump two to one, maybe even closer to three to one. Didn't matter. Money's definitely not the only thing. The reason money's important in politics is you just, uh, or it's necessary but not sufficient, right? So if you just mm-hmm. don't have any money, I mean, very rarely it works where just someone doesn't raise money and they win. But usually you've got to have enough to compete. And then once you get there, it's about the candidate and the message. But in my race, that's like, that, that floor is like 70 million bucks by the general election. I will have to raise 70 million bucks. And you're at two right now? Okay. <laughs> yeah. But the way it works is like, you know, in the primary, I'm, my 1 million last quarter was way more than my competitors. So like they're bad fundraisers. I think I'm like decent at it. And if I can out fundraise them relatively every quarter and continue to be the best candidate on message, then sort of once it's clear that I'm the nominee, all of a sudden it's Q2, Q3 next year, and I'm raising five, 10. And then towards the end, this is a national race. So money's just going to flow in. Unfortunately, these races are like ungodly expensive. I didn't think about how much money is external from Arizona versus internal. I was wondering, how do you create Blake FOMO? Because even hanging out with you, the one like, it's like, I think the third time I now hung out with you and it's like, I had this, oh shit, like if Blake wins, like I'm going to know Blake, right? Right. right. It's kind of, yeah. it, there is a little, I guess, yeah. how do you create that? Or like, hey, I've gotten this endorsement or. Yeah, know, we're just that. trying to, we're just trying to build, you know, President Trump was kind enough to throw uh, a fundraiser or host really, I should say, a fundraiser for me at Mar-a-Lago. That was on November 10th. It was great because like, yeah, we got to raise some money, but then someone, uh, we weren't supposed to take photos, so we didn't, but someone leaked out a photo of me and President Trump standing right there, sort of on the patio in front of everybody. And uh, he he spoke for a couple minutes and I got to speak to him and to the audience for five minutes. And that photo alone, right, that just showed he was there. He hasn't endorsed me, hasn't endorsed me yet. You know, I hope he hope he does. But just that show of support, right? And then all the people that didn't get to go were like, oh man, I wish I could have been there. It's like that looked like it was special. <laughs> and I'm like, well, next time you can't. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I'm seeing a month over month change, you know, like I started out as a true outsider, like nobody really knew who I was. Now it's still true that most people who will vote for me next August and next November don't know who I am, but that's changing. And also so many people who haven't personally met me now have heard of me. So it's just interesting to watch the traction happen right now. I'll walk into a Republican uh, legislative district meeting, like a, a meeting of activists. And maybe I haven't been to that town before that part of the city and uh, they've all heard of me and they've all seen some video that's gone viral or something, you know, they'll know that president Trump hosted that fundraiser. And so it's just, it's just like being in a startup and you start to, you're working hard for like three months and it's like, gosh, when is this thing going to actually get some traction? And then boom, it does. And, um, let's try to get a hockey stick going. Well, I have curious similarities of a political campaign and a startup. I guess, and personally, I, you know, whether the audience is Democrat, Republican or not, I, I think it's just fascinating and impressive that you're going for it. Yeah. Like you're not sitting on the sidelines complaining. You're like, I'm going to actually do something about it. I was curious to hear more behind the scenes. Like, what does it take to win? How do you coordinate? Is it, is it just like a startup where you have a marketing plan? Shit's crazy. You're trying a lot of stuff out. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We've got a field plan and like, you know. What does that mean? Uh, just how to get, um, how to organize all your volunteers to go and like knock on the right doors, right? You could have somebody, I'd rather have uh, one half the volunteers that a competitor has if my volunteers are well-organized and we're using data the right way to go and like actually know who's door to knock on and what literature to distribute and when. But just like a startup, it's like, you got to have a plan. The plan will change radically, you know, go back and look at any successful companies like series A pitch and you can squint and probably see a lot of the commonalities, but like stuff changes. So we've got our field plan and yeah, you have a digital advertising plan, but but it just changes. And a lot of it's just drinking from a fire hose. And oh, hopefully things look professional and buttoned up from the outside because it shouldn't just look like chaos. But of course, inside, I think campaigns are very uh, dynamic and often chaotic. And you always feel like you're behind and and you are and you better work damn hard. But yeah, it's just um, time management too. It's, there's fundraising. There's just grassroots. Like you got to go and actually just meet people. 
right? Um, but there's social media. Like most people who are going to vote for me, I unfortunately won't get to meet in person. You know, I need 250,000 people to vote for me in August. That's the main election or primary? Primary. So you need 250,000. Maybe less. It depends because it's plurality. So we have a couple guys in the race and maybe, uh, you know, in theory, I could win with 25% of the vote if they get less. But but I think it'll narrow down. I think it'll be sort of a two-man race and uh, call it, yeah, I need at least 100,000 people to vote for me. I still can't meet 100,000 people before August. It's just too many. How do you guys think about that? Do you work backwards, like from a marketing perspective? Like, I want a quarter million votes. Here's the regions. Here's the people I think will vote for us. And then you, is there like... There's a, there's a lot of that. And there's um, there's people on our team whose job it is to think that way. And so, yes, the official answer is yes. That's not how I personally sort of approach it. Like, my job is not to do the data ops and the field plan. It's to sort of yeah, help execute that and, like, play my, play my part. But I... Um, yeah, I'd much rather just go to a grassroots room and maybe there's only 150 people there and that's not that many votes, but I'd rather just like spend time with them and hear what's on their mind and like tell them how I'm sizing up the race and, and 2022 generally and like where our country is. And I think, uh, especially early on, like you do, you do things that can't stay. And you know, this is another start. You do things that can't scale to start. And that's the only way to sort of. You know, just make the, make those first one thousand people love you, or you know, it's just like Paul Graham advice. Yeah, but I think um, a lot of that early stage startup stuff does map on to politics, and then hopefully you get some traction, and then you really figure out how to scale it up. One thing I, I don't understand, Blake, is that life is great. You work with Peter Thiel. You have a great wife, kids. You're in Arizona. Life is perfect. I'm like, why would he want to do this? Like, I know that you want to help America. I'm like, okay, got it. But I'm like, yo, just like. Like I ran for government, I went for politics in college and I was like, yo, this sucks. <laughs> I won and it was great. Yeah. It was great to win. But I was like, everyone's just talking. Yeah. Yeah. People just talk the whole time. They don't do shit. They're just, they're like, do nothings. And I'm like, yo, you can make all this money. You got to do whatever you want. And now you're, you're calling, you know, randos for a G, which is fine. And I, I admire that. And I respect the hustle there. Yeah. But I just was trying to grasp like. Why do that versus just like you're, you know, going yeah, to the I startup? Mean, fair enough. It's not, uh, it's not the easiest thing to do. It's not the most comfortable thing to do. I do think it's important. Like, I actually think I, um, I mean, I'm doing well. I'll do even better. I will win. And I think I can like meaningfully change things. I think it's important. So it's kind of easy for me to, to make the sacrifice. And yeah, it's a sacrifice. And like, it's like probably better for my family if I don't win, you know, because then I can spend more time. Yeah. But it's like, we all, we all know this. And um, I think it's also easy to overestimate the sacrifice. Go on. What do you mean? Like, yeah, it sucks. But like, okay, um, you know, I have three kids. They're seven, five, and one and a half. And I, I mean, they're amazing. I love to see them, obviously, every day. I don't get to see them every day because I'm on the campaign trail, right? Like, I'm here with you in, in Texas. I've been gone for five or six days. I think I'll go back to Arizona for five days uh, starting tonight. But it's like, yeah, that sucks, and I miss that time with my kids. But think about like what a you know enlisted service member does. Like they go on deployments to God knows where in the world, and they don't get to see often like the births of their own child, and they're gone for nine months, and they're getting like shot at, and you know. So it's like, yeah, it's true. I'm I'm sacrificing something to run, and I'm leaving a, a really comfortable perch behind. But I think the sacrifice is like relative, relative to, like what other Americans have sacrificed for this country, like. I'm barely doing anything. And so I, I do try to keep it in perspective that my wife is sacrificing like more than I am. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a real burden. She homeschools three boys, but like three little boys are, they're crazy. And it, and it really, you know, we're blessed, but like, it's hard. It's a lot, man. Yeah. But it's, um, it's important. I look at it as a one year sprint, you know, I'll win and that'll be great. And we'll sort of, you know, restructure our family life and, and all that. And, and worst case, like, I think I'm going to win, but say I didn't. Okay, there's that opportunity cost of that that one year. But again, like it was probably a blessing. I probably met so many people. Uh, certainly, I got my views out, and I think that's that's important. I think it is inspiring. I get like a lot of messages from young people saying like, "Thank God for what you're doing." Like we have hope for the future because of your candidacy, right? It's like that's meaningful and that propels me forward. But like worst case, it didn't work. And as long as I run the right race and I know I tried, it's like what more could I do? And then I can go back to doing cool stuff with Peter and making money and I have it good. And so because I have it good and because I think I have the the skills and the interest and the, the ability to go in and, and uh, win and help fix things, no brainer. It's just like, go do that. I think it's interesting you think of it, the opportunity cost is not that high in a one year. Obviously, with the family is a lot. 
the capacity and an idea of you do get to meet a lot of interesting people uh, on this path. I was one, I was wondering if like, do you also think like some of the competitors maybe are discounting you or like counting you out? Like I, I have heard you say now, like, you know, like I'm going to win. I'm like, I like the conviction. Cause like even my own oh, company, yeah. I'm like, I think we'll do pretty well this year. You're like, no, I'm I mean, win. I think we'll win. Uh, <laughs> I'm happy to hedge it. No, I'm going to win. I mean, we see, we see the numbers. I'm going up into the right. I've gone from like three or 4% in the polls to 14% uh, in just three or four months. There's only one competitor ahead of me, Attorney General Burnovich in Arizona, and he's gone from the 30s to 26, 26, 14, but yeah, it's a 12 point gap, but the velocity looks good. Like I'm going to catch him and pass him because I'm a real person and I will tell people what I think. And um, I've been paying attention a long time. I think I'm pretty good at policy. I think I understand like what's gone wrong in this country. I don't have all the answers, but like I've got a beat on what the what the shape of the problem is. And what we need to do, and he's just a conventional politician that would never, ever do a show like this, that would never actually, he can't even go on like Tucker Carlson, because Tucker will ask him hard questions about like why he hasn't been doing X, Y, and Z, and he just doesn't do that. He's a normal politician. It's not the worst one, but not the best one. And I think uh, people are ready for something new. People will understand that at this moment in our country's history, like we can't just do the same stuff that we've been doing on autopilot for decades. It doesn't work. and so. I think I stand out quite a bit from the competition. What are you doing to gain market share? I guess I don't know. Yeah. I guess vote share. Yeah. And then what would yeah, I guess how are you how do you think about that? It's two things. One, it's just going to all these events, just talking to voters. And again, it feels like that can't scale because I can't possibly reach everybody that way. I like that. But we're doing so much of that early on. And I think it's a mistake. It's a mistake we've seen candidates in Arizona make before. The hyper-rational candidate will say, like, I need 250,000 votes. I can only meet 20,000 people. Therefore, I will spend all my time locked in a basement just making fundraising phone calls. I'll become phenomenal at that. I'll get the 80 million bucks, and I'll have TV ads. And that that makes sense in a way. And in theory, if those ads are perfect and people feel like they know you through the television, like, it could work. But, but it doesn't. Like, people really do have to have met somebody who's met you or, you know, the word of mouth, like it really spreads Like the grassroots is real and you have to connect with real people, not just through a screen. But the flip side is if you only do that, you just become like a beloved, you know, figure in the grassroots and you never break out, you know, mm-hmm. and I see some candidates also in Arizona who only spend time with the grassroots. And I'm trying to like, that's where my heart is. That's where I'd spend all my time if I could. But if you don't raise money, or if your message sucks and you can't actually go on TV for whatever reason, you will never break out, right? You should do things that don't scale. But if you only ever do things that don't scale, well, you're never going to scale, obviously, right? I mean, it's yeah. so so yeah. simple and so stupid when I when I put it that way, but it's really true. And so um, we're just trying to get the, the balances right. And I think um, social media is an incredible tool for politicians and for campaigns. And it's almost rarely used well. I mean, just look at the, I think it's generational too. Like, look at the difference between Elizabeth Warren and AOC, you know, and say what you will about AOC's politics. Personally, I find them abhorrent. I think they're, I think she's like wrong about probably everything, almost everything, like whatever. <laughs> but I respect that she's, um, she's a communicator. She's good at that. She's talented. She's making sort of native use of the, the mediums. She's a young person. She gets it. She's online. And uh, <laughs> by contrast, do you remember the Elizabeth Warren uh, Instagram? beer thing uh-huh. she had some um it was when she was running for president before she dropped out and she just did this thing and she's like oh hi, hi. i'm just in my kitchen uh, having a beer and it was just obviously so fake <laughs> and then like her husband was out of frame she's like oh oh hey husband come on over and join me you know and he comes in frame and it's just like oh my god and you know behind the cameras she had like an army of there were probably 50 people in the room and it was just so fake and Trump even lit her up over this. He said, like, uh, in some press conference, he's like, did you see this Elizabeth Warren video? Like, it's so fake. My gosh. She's like, honey, what, oh, what are you doing here? Come here. And then Trump said, like, the husband lives there. It's his house. He's supposed to be there, right? And you could just, like, <laughs> skewer her for this cringe video that doesn't even work with her own ideological followers, right? Yeah. Anyway, I should mention, everyone else in my race is much older than me. Yeah. And they've got their teams, their consultants running the social media. I do my own Twitter feed. Like my staffer doesn't have access to my cell phone. If I get hit by a bus, my Twitter goes dark. I'm not even sure. <laughs> I'm not I'm just yeah. um, but I think that's important. People need to know I'm using this medium to communicate with you. And it's not 
focus grouped and massaged by consultants. It's just not fake for better or worse. Yeah. It's just not fake. And I think, uh, that's like the one thing that like Trump and AOC, hopefully my candidacy have in common. I'm not in the habit of praising Democrats, but I do think AOC is like a very good communicator. And we on the right could learn from that. Yeah. This is why Trump busted on the scene in 2016, right? Say what you will about his politics. Maybe people just, I thought he was a great president, but what you can't deny, what nobody can deny is he's a, just a, a world-class communicator. He just told people what he was thinking. And there was never any doubt that that's actually what he thought. Yeah. How do, how do you feel about that association? And how was it hanging out with them? I don't even want to talk my politics necessarily, but it's amazing how polarizing uh, him as a person. And so I, I was wondering for you, I know Peter, when, I remember when Peter initially announced yeah. that he was associating and saying, I, I'm backing it. I was like, what the fuck? Right? Like Peter's this idol in the tech world. Yeah. And then, uh, so I wonder from a branding and marketing, it's like, how much do you, you want his endorsement, but you don't want too close. To, I guess, how's he been? In, in oh, I mean, I want his endorsement and I'm running, you know, on the Trump 2016 MAGA agenda. Like, I think that was good for the country in 2016. I think it's what we still need, certainly in Arizona, but also nationwide. And I'm really grateful to him. I think we'd be in year five of the Hillary administration now if Trump didn't come and do what he did. I think his policies were effective. Uh, I like a lot of the mean tweets. Like, I think you needed that brash New York billionaire attitude to come in and bust stuff up. I also think he's funny. I do. I think he's like world-class funny. Uh, I mean, if you spend any time with him in person and he's just riffing, he's got a, uh, a natural delivery. Reminds me of like a comic. Like he's just, he really has a aptitude for telling these stories and, and making them funny. And I think the modern left has no sense of humor. I really do. And they can't even give him props for being funny, but he's obviously funny. And that's why, I mean, he's a, he's a world it's entertaining. Entertainer. He's definitely entertaining. He, he, he's a master entertainer and he always was. And, and he woke up a lot of people by, by marrying substance. Like, hi, China's eating our lunch and they've been doing it for 30 years and we've been letting them have it or the Iraq war was a mistake. Like he says all this, all this true stuff and then actually delivered policy to back it up. But, but he also, I think, woke a lot of people up because he was able to talk about these things. Yes, frankly, but also with humor. It's actually pretty rare. So it's fun hanging out with him. Um, I, I welcome the association. I'm obviously like a different person. I'm not trying to like copy him. I think it would fail if I did. And I think I have a different personality. So like I do meet some people that that say like we really like the policies, but he was so polarizing and like, you know, we don't like that. We didn't like the fights that he picked. It was a bit, honestly, it was, tire, it was tiring. Like I, I enjoyed the entertainment. I actually thought he had good ideas, but just something got clouded because it was just like this meanness and this criticism. I'm like... But I guess that, that that's what comes with it. I don't. I don't Absolutely. know. Absolutely. I mean, he's a you know he's a world historical figure, and that's that's what happened. I think it was net really good for the country. But I understand, like, yeah, some people aren't going to like everybody. Like, I I think it's great. But you know, when I talk to these voters that that say like, oh, I didn't I didn't vote for Trump in 2020, even though I thought the policies were working because I was exhausted about the rhetoric or something. So many of them now tell me like, oops, <laughs> buyer's remorse. Like, we can't believe we voted for Biden because, like, this is just the substance of what we're like. Bring back the mean tweets, right? So, I do hear that a lot. But I think in Arizona, no, I think his endorsement is huge. I do. And I think I'm the best uh, candidate in the race for a full stop period, but also the best candidate to sort of pick up, you know, what he ran on and what he stood for and help those, help push, the, push those policies forward. So, that's why I think I'll have his backing, I hope. And, um, I think that's actually an asset in the general election, too. Those policies are certainly super popular. I think President Trump himself is a lot more popular in Arizona than people think. What's it like hanging out with the president? Because, like, well, one thing, I was walking and there was a drawing of Obama. And I was like, dude, we've had a black president and an entertainer businessman as our president in the last, like, 10 years. Like, this is fucking awesome. Like, we're at a really cool time in history. But, like, you hung out with the president. I mean, hang on. Obviously, Peter Thiel is a legend in his own. Sure, sure. There's only, like, how many presidents? 40? In the history of our country? 46. 46, yeah. It's, I mean, it's great. It's kind of surreal, you know, but, um, you know, we got a chance to catch up privately. And uh, I don't know, man, it's like, he, I mean, the charisma is off the charts and it's like sort of world-class entertainer and he's, um, but he's paying attention. I mean, he was paying attention to the race in Arizona. Like he, he knew the details. He had seen the polling. And uh, obviously that's very, very cool. And we could talk about that, but then you realize he's tracking like so many of these different races. And like doing other stuff, like he's, he's on it. I think he's on it. But yeah, you kind of permit yourself to be like, holy shit, 
like talking to, talking to the president right now, right? Yeah. But um, to his credit, it's also like that wears off because he's just uh, he's just a cool guy. Like you see, you read all these stories about like when he was building buildings in New York. Um, yeah, he's got like gold-plated toilet and mansion, and you know, he's Donald Trump the billionaire. But he would always just walk the construction site and turn over the bucket and sit on it and have lunch with the crew. You know, so it's the super, yeah, super elite billionaire, but also I think like without any bullshit, like a man of the working class. And so when you chat with him, like kind of feels like you're chatting with this really cool uncle that you'd want to have a beer with. (laughs) That's my impression so far. We're not like super close. I don't know him super well, but yeah, but yeah, it's uh, surreal is the best, is the best way I can describe it. Objectively, there are things he did that I liked. I think I was just tired of all the, not just him, but the media. Just like, oh yeah, couldn't even get a break. Just like, can we? Can he just try to run the country? Let him try to do his job, whether you like him or not. Just let him. Try. He got chosen to do it. I didn't think I'm still baffled. I don't know how your take is. I'm still shocked. I don't know how it didn't, it's not a bigger thing that he got censored. Oh yeah. By the way, are we not in fucking America? Right. Like this is free speech. Apparently not no. That is they so literally great. banned. The previous leader, the former leader of our country from speaking publicly. Also, I, while he was president, those bans happened after uh, the alleged so-called insurrection, the, the January 6th trespass. Then it was Facebook and Twitter. But between January 6th and January 20th, I think I'm right about this. Uh, that's when they ripped him off. Huh, I he, don't was the, he was the sitting president of the United States. And Facebook and Twitter were just like, nah. How is that okay? Like, look, there's people that it's hate not okay. Jews. There's, there's like Nazis in Austin. Dude. I'm like, I don't agree, obviously, but I remember, I will tell you, when I, I just got to speak candidly. When I was at Berkeley, I went in neutral, not political whatsoever, and there was uh, Michael Savage yeah. and these different political people that wanted to come speak. I wasn't for him or against them. I was like, well, I want to hear what they have to say. But people would refuse to let them speak. Right. I'm like, this is, was it like free speech with an asterisk? Right. Oh, absolutely. No, the left believes in free speech, and if, uh, if, if they agree fine, with it, if they're in the front print, yeah, it's, if, if they agree with it, if it's socially just. But I don't understand how no one, how we've literally banned our president from talking, uh, and people are just like, okay, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it is a real top priority when I get in the Senate, is these companies can, they, they should not be allowed to censor, I think they shouldn't be allowed to censor you or me. Like, I think they should be common carriers, just like the phone company. But to mm. censor a sitting president of the United States... When these are the new town square, the new, it's, it's the way information is transmitted in our society. Oh my God, should not yeah. be allowed. Should not be allowed and should be absolutely punished and shut down. I'm imagining if I texted you and then they filtered it out. And so, But we don't assume that they'll do that, but they just did that on... Well, and we started to see with some of the COVID misinformation stuff. I mean, I think, uh, I, I forget the details, but there was something about how some phone carriers are going to sniff text messages and put in, like, you know, if I say, like, don't get the vaccine, it doesn't work or whatever. They're going to... You know, it's just like Facebook and Twitter. That you, you type one thing at the VAX, and then all of a sudden there's like a little warning sign, right? Actually, this could be misinformation. Like, it's really dystopian. It is really dystopian. And I don't know. You're right. It's like they got away with it so far. They censored the sitting president of the United States. They said he was inciting violence. Like, it's bullshit. And if you go to YouTube, like, you cannot see a President Trump rally. They pull it down on YouTube. I'm not even saying that people should support or not support Trump, but the idea that this person can't talk publicly is yeah. really concerning in our country. That sounds like a communist country that censors we're, free speech. I, I think that's the impulse. And we're probably a lot closer to, yeah, a communist country that people just wouldn't recognize than we think. But because it's happening slowly, not even that slowly, but it's bad, man. I mean, Taliban commanders, you know, these anti-Semitic shahs in Iran, like they're allowed to have verified Twitter accounts. And President Trump can't tweet. <laughs> that is bonkers. And this is why I'm motivated to run. It's like, I think it's, I think it's bullshit. I think I can articulate why. I think I can um, sort of make the public case for like why this is insane, but also do the <clears throat> hard work of like, you know, getting the right legislation in place and whipping the votes in the Senate and actually passing this stuff so that these companies can't do this. I want your startup to be successful. You know, like Peter invested in Facebook when it was small, it became big, like, hey, great. But at a certain point, if you're that big and you're going to be that left wing and put your thumb on the scale and censor conservatives, like, no, we're not going to tolerate that. And we have, like, a, a, a narrow window here to actually get it right and meaningfully restrain these big tech companies. And if we don't do that, there's no free speech. And the progressive left might like that right now, but I don't think they'll be liking that in five or ten years. Someone asked me this today. I would love to hear your take. You're now president. Not even just senator. You're now the president. Blake Masters president. 
It's ridiculous. What? No, no, no. Okay, okay. Well, I'm just saying you're president. Yeah, okay. Hypothetically. Three, what, are, what are three things you can, you can, you're now in charge. Executive orders are even, someone asked me this today. I was like, oh, interesting. Um, I'm curious your take. Like you can do, what are the three first things you would like to do as president? I mean, it's kind of the first three things I'd like to do as senator, right? But uh, it's just, I think we need uh, to close the border. I think we need to have a real border. Like I see this in Arizona, 225,000 people are um, illegally crossing every month. Most of them trafficked, women and children, horribly abused, raped, you know, drugs. I mean, it's it's really bad. Um, the border crisis is basically invented, I think, by this Biden administration reversing these policies. And it's unfair. It's unfair to the people it's happening to down there. It's unfair to the people, um, you know, my future constituents on these, these border communities. I think it's unfair to every single American citizen. And um, I'm not saying we should have zero immigration. I think we should have some. But Congress should have a debate. And we should, like, understand who should come here and what country should they be from and what skills should they have? Like, should we know who's coming here or should we just throw the border wide open and have it be chaos and anarchy? That's what it is now. And so, yeah, close the border. Two is meaningfully restrained big tech. Oh, that's interesting. I, I am serious. Like, I don't think we have a First Amendment in this country if big tech just gets to uh, do whatever they want, especially over the next couple of years as they work even more closely with the, the Biden White House. Like, I got real concerned a couple weeks ago when the White House Communications Office revealed that they were telling Facebook what information to take off in terms of like COVID misinformation, right? Jen Psaki identifies this, you know, popular Facebook user as anti-vax or anti-vax mandate, spreading misinformation. And so Facebook, of course, whether for ideological reasons, because they're sympathetic to the Biden administration, or probably more because like, you know, Biden's got an antitrust hammer right now. And, and they basically say like, Facebook, if you play ball with us, you know, maybe bad things won't happen to you. But Facebook, uh, for whatever reason, is playing ball. And that fusion of enormous corporate power with the state, I think, uh, I think is deadly. And so I think we need to, to restrain big tech or Facebook, you know, to be up on Facebook more. The Hunter Biden laptop story. Mm, this right. was um, not familiar because Facebook and Twitter censored it from the Internet three weeks before the election. But this was like the New York Post wrote this uh, expose of Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. Uh, and his crazy business dealings, and he he left this laptop somewhere, and on the laptop is like a bunch of disgusting, personally incriminating stuff, but also stuff about like um, his business dealings with various foreign countries, and looks bad. And you know, a lot of people say, I think persuasively, a lot of it seemed to implicate Joe Biden. It's like a real scandal that happens three weeks before, and um, Facebook and Twitter said that the story was misinformation, and they blocked it from being shared on the platforms and it's like i don't know how many hundreds of millions of people like didn't get to see it or certainly tens of millions of voters like didn't get to see that story which now has been like totally verified for a long time you know maybe the claims were unsubstantiated but like no it turned out to be good reporting from a real newspaper that was censored by big tech i think google suppressed it too in the weeks before a presidential election and of course, the official margins in this presidential election were so small, like in the key swing states. I think 90,000 votes separated Trump from Biden in terms of an electoral college victory. In Arizona, it was 10,500 uh, votes, a little bit less. And so you're telling me like that one act of corporate censorship really either could or did swing the election. I mean, man, I don't think we have a free country anymore if we don't meaningfully restrain big tech. I think that might be hard to do, but like can't do it unless you elect new younger people competent people who actually understand a the threat and be like how could we possibly do this in an intelligent way so that's point two is regulate big tech in the right way and three i mean there's all this stuff i could say i think we need to to really get serious about china and the chinese threat but i think i'll go with the more macro thing i want to i want to pursue policies that actually make it easier and better to raise a family in this country I mean, I think America already is the best place to raise a family in so many ways. Like most people wouldn't choose to try to do it somewhere else. But I think the family, the family structure, I think is under attack in America, either directly or indirectly, just through sort of declining economic conditions and opportunities for people. And so I'm campaigning on this idea that you should be able to raise a family in America on one single income which is really interesting because you'd think everybody would agree with that. But the modern left attacks me when I say that because they say it's sexist, even though it's like, I did not say 
that the man should work and the woman should stay at home. You know, maybe it's the opposite, or maybe you want to have two earners in a household because, you know, people are into their careers or there's a lot of single moms, a lot of single dads with kids out there like, trying to make it work. Right. So I'm, all I'm saying is that should be a goal. It should be an economic policy goal where just like you used to in this country, a single median wage can support a family of four. You can buy a house and have a car and take a vacation. And yeah, you're not rich, but you're American middle class. And, um, you know, do that. It's like you need to make wages rise and you need to make costs of living, healthcare, education, housing fall. But I think having that goal be a goal that your economic policy is designed to achieve is the starting point. Like if you don't say this is what we're this is what we're going for and let's measure our our activity to see how it's doing, you know, relative to this goal. Like, why would you expect things to just magically, you know, get to that place? Which is why they don't. All we measure is GDP and some, you know, stuff like that. So it's like, well, our GDP is going up over here. Look how awesome everything is. And I think it's good for a number of people, mainly, you know, people on the coasts, people in these high income jobs, people in, in the elite, so-called. Yeah. But we've had a problem in the American middle class. I think it's declining. And I think a lot of that is sort of by design and it could be arrested and reversed. That'd be my like broad goal. That's how I'd know if my time in the Senate, you asked about the presidency, but I'm not going to take the bait. Yeah. If my time in the Senate is a success, it's like, do we still have an America that we know and recognize? Do we still have meaningful freedoms like the First Amendment, like the Second Amendment? Do we have a, a border? Do we have an environment where yeah, people can, can afford to actually raise a family? And if we do, then I think America, as we know it and love it, is thriving. And if we don't, then yikes. I think what I want anyone who's listening and watching is that separate of the politics, just like learning how these things are thought of, which I appreciate. Yep. Uh, it's interesting because like the some of the stuff, I think a lot of us reply in sound bites, reply in like titles. Close the border. Like when I my parents live in New Mexico, they're like, yeah, close the border. I'm like, well, I'm really not want immigrants. In. Like my dad's an immigrant. Like there's a lot of great immigrants. Like we absolutely want to come. We hire a lot of, but I think that what I actually heard you say, which I've never really heard before is you're not saying close. It. You're just saying we need to have it organized. Is that, did I hear it correctly? Yeah. And I mean, but I, I, so I start by saying close the border and then I sort of explain what I mean. I do think we should have like a, a physical border at this point in the South Southwest border region, like oh, the wall, I think is good. So in that sense, yeah, I want the border closed. I mean, I think Trump, Trump's line on this, right. was like, we're going to have a beautiful border wall. <laughs> with a beautiful door. Okay, we got a big, beautiful door. Like, what are you complaining about? And I think that's genius. Again, that's his genius ability to communicate with people and just pisses liberals off, right? They're like, oh, it's offensive to them that he talks about a big, beautiful door. But um, look, there's going to be trade. Yeah, there's going to be some movement of people across the border, but it should be controlled. We should know who they are. It shouldn't be Chinese fentanyl and, you know, Mexican cartel drug dealers. It should be people who are seasonal ag workers and, you know, you have an intelligent visa program to sort of manage them. It should be trade pursuant to hopefully like, you know, trade deals that that benefit Americans. It should be people who get visas to come here and work, but it shouldn't just be like a million people a year by default. Is that what it is now? We yeah take more than a million legal immigrants every year, which I think is a lot. I think it's too high. I've seen the Silicon Valley context, the H-1B visa system, I think is uh, sort of corporate welfare for Facebook and Google at this point. Like, I think we have a responsibility to train Americans how to be good software engineers. And, um, you know, the visa programs I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to are like the O-1, the extraordinary talented individual. It's like if you're a rocket scientist from wherever, Switzerland or Bangladesh, like don't care. If, you know, if you really have some skill set, that just makes everybody in this country better where you're coming in. And because of your unique accomplishments and skills and training and, and just your own unique brain, you are not displacing an American by coming here. You're actually maybe providing jobs for Americans. You're, you're creating new things. Yeah. We want you to come here. Like truly, I want the world's best and the brightest to come here. And I suspect that's not like a million people every year. Even if it was, we're not taking those million. We're taking just sort of, you know, it's just, it's, it's much more random and, and broken than that. So I'm not saying we should have zero immigration. I do think we should have net a lot less. But then the people that we do take, maybe there's a debate about this. Should it be 100,000? Should it be 200,000 people every year? But like Congress, right, the Senate actually should debate who should these people be, where should they be from, and uh, we should be able to articulate why this is going to make the country better for the Americans that are already here. 
I think that's like table stakes. So that's what I mean when I say close the border, uh, revamp the legal immigration system, and let's figure out what's going on. Well, and I won't, I'm not going to get into the debates or uh, the merits of that. I guess just sometimes the politics, I'm like, is anything actually going to happen? You know, like, that's why I went back to yeah. business. Like, I remember at yeah. college, I did it for one year, and I was like, never again. Because it's just like, you're going to debate, they're going to do something, it'll change, first letter goes back, and it's just like... Oh, it's, I, look, I'm not naive about this. Um, I, I, there's a lot of wisdom in your question. You're, of course, totally right. By default, nothing changes. It's just gridlock. It's, and you get there, and you see how it's actually done, and you, I mean... No, I know I'll get there and I'll just want to bang my head against the wall. I'm not naive about that. I, I do think that much less can get done than people even think in one year. And probably, though, much more can get done in five or six years than people think. Like stuff, stuff moves mm-hmm. quickly. Like, unfortunately, um, we live in a really volatile world. I mean, I think Donald Trump changed U.S. politics forever, I think for the better, by coming on the scene and doing that in 2016. But in 2014, none of us could have imagined and, uh, you know, COVID and the yeah, crazy pandemic and then sometimes the crazy responses to it. And I mean, it, it's just been really crazy. But like, how much has the world changed, I think, yeah, for the worse in the last two years? Like, things really can change. I think our politics, um, sclerotic, it's broken, it's bureaucratic. Uh, and so it's not responsive to this stuff. But I don't think these institutions are working. I think they're crumbling. They've lasted a lot longer than I could have thought. But I think at some point you get a tectonic shift and I want to be there to both help make that happen and, and be there to, to help sort of set the right course once it does happen. So I think we could see a lot of change in the next 10 years. And the hope is it doesn't go like left-wing Bolshevik revolution led by AOC and Bernie Sanders. Like, I think that's bad. That's one possibility for the way America breaks though. Um, and I'm trying to have it go in a different direction. Do you have any policies or anything that might be against Peter Thiel? Well, I want to break up Facebook. Yeah, because I was thinking, like, you're saying no Facebook, which is, one, free speech, to some extent, which they're kind of against, which they're against. I mean, he's definitely annoyed at Facebook. But, I, yeah, I was just like, is there anything? Like, for the, the election, the election stuff, and I mean, I, mean, you know, I know he's Mark, on, I know on the board now. I, mean, I think they... Oh, I think that, but also, you know, does. his IRA, his backdoor thing that made major news? Yeah. And yeah. I was like, are you... <laughs> so look, I... I, I was curious, I was like, was there anything against Peter? Well, look, I mean, Not Peter, that, Peter, I think... Uh, it's not even a loophole, but he, he brilliantly used the tax code in a completely legal way to build up this giant IRA, right? I think it was worth $5 billion at the end of 2019. Very hard to do, but he had this, he founded PayPal and then had that successful investment in Facebook. And okay, boom, all of a sudden you've got a $5 billion IRA. I understand why that makes Amy Klobuchar upset and liberals upset. They say like, oh, the, the Roth IRA program was designed for middle-class tax savings, right? It wasn't designed to like allow billionaires to accumulate wealth tax-free. And it's like, fair enough. I understand why they want to change the rules. Like, maybe you should change the rules. But um, what they're trying to do is change the rules retroactively. They're trying to say that he did this, and even though it was legal, and he's he's built all this money up tax-free at a Roth, they're trying to, in the Build Back Better bill, at least early drafts of it, they were trying to say that, nope, no Roths past $20 million are allowed, and so they're going to force distribution. But if you force distribution before someone's 59 and a half, you have to pay tax on it, which has the effect of basically like stealing half of someone's money when they were following all the rules. I think that's theft. I think that's unconstitutional. I think it's a bill of attainder, you know, and like, I would just know it's like he, he made that money and it was fair and square and it was legal. And if you try to steal it from him, I think that's like uh, communism or a short step away from it, you know, but if you want to, if you want to say like, well, that was not properly drafted, the Roth legislation in 1997, and it always should have had a cap, then I'm like, sure, that makes sense. Let's debate what the cap should be going forward. You know, but this is what the, I, I think it's more about retribution and punishment for his support of Trump in 2016 than like a rational tax code. So yeah, I'll probably disagree with Peter on, on some issues about like taxes and stuff like that. Um, I'm not a fan of targeted advertising, certainly to children. I think it's crazy that Facebook can serve ads to 16-year-olds on Instagram. I'm trying to think what else we'd disagree on quite a bit although i'm also like candid about like i've learned a lot from him and he's been like a mentor and you know, we see the world in like largely the same way and we both see america as like the last best chance against the one, one world state it's like america and i think well, this healthy sense of nationalism that i think you know trump cultivated and that i'm trying to to run on campaign on like a strong america is 
the one thing that prevents a sort of Chinese takeover of the world, or just uh, in less charismatic fashion, the world just being run by Brussels and sort of European decline. I think if America as, as a nation distinct from other nations falls, you get to this place in 20 or 30 years, or maybe a lot sooner, where it's just the one world state, and sort of independence and individual freedom are squashed out. That's mm-hmm. the mob. The mob wins. And that's what we're trying to prevent. It blows my mind as you say that, that as we talk about nationalism, it's almost like you can't be a nationalist here. Like to say you like America is like, oh, you know, it's almost like on the edge, which is kind of crazy. Like, as you said, you're like, yeah, Trump did for good or bad. He was like, yo, America, I want it to be the fucking best. Like, call it whatever tagline. America first. And then I say, oh, America first has historical baggage and it's unfair. I was like, but it's like. If you're a politician and you're representing America, <laughs> yeah, you're not trying to put America first. You're trying to put Serbia first or something. It's like what? Yeah, you know. But no, it's always this instinct, this left wing instinct to defer to our allies, to defer to global opinion. You know, it's like no, we lead the way. I don't want to like lead the way into Iraq and Afghanistan and, and the George Bush neocon stuff. But I do think we lead the way by being a nation that actually cares about its people and. Um, yeah, we're going to be friends with other nations, but not even friends. It's just nations have different interests and you like deal with each other. I don't want enemies, but I don't, I don't want, uh, you know, just to be entangled with Europe as some interchangeable cog. It's like, we're a unique nation. We're a unique people and that's okay. And if that isn't okay to you, then like examine that because that's really weird. It's really weird not to be proud of your country, not to say, uh, you're proud of your country and you should work to make it better. I was at a soccer game two months ago, the Austin FC soccer game. Okay. And they had the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. And straight up, I was proud. I was like pledging to allegiance, That's awesome. which I never did in elementary school. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And then as an adult, you're like, I pledge allegiance. And I was like, why does this actually, I'm like, America's fucking dope, dude. Like, it's a great place. Like, I've gotten hooked up. Like, I, I live this awesome life. But I was thinking in that moment, it, it dawned on me that, like, if we try to pass a pledge to actually say your allegiance to America today, I don't think it would pass. I think a lot of schools don't do it anymore. It's one of the most fun things about campaigning. Like, uh, you go to these rooms, and no matter how small the gathering is, it might be like me and seven voters. But uh, we start with an invocation. Someone leads a, a prayer, and then we do the Pledge of Allegiance. Or when I'm at a bigger event in the National Anthem, it's like, you, if, if the National Anthem is playing and you're more interested, not to just take a familiar side in a culture war here, but yeah, if you're just more interested in, like, kneeling, and doing some bullshit protest over some other actual injustice or perceived injustice, then like, I don't know, I think it's demented. I don't understand it because the national anthem, man, put your hand over your heart and you look at the flag and it's playing, especially if you're in a crowd of people and that tugs, it tugs at the heartstrings. Yeah, no shit on other countries. I'm just like, yo, we got lucky to be born here. And I'm like, well, they're proud of their national anthems. I mean, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so so the, the fact that we have to like ritualistically, like we self-humiliate. And, yeah, we're so sorry for being the best country in the target i think it's it's kind of almost like the crypto thing in the sense that people have not experienced us not being number one people have not experienced the market going down in mm-hmm. some amount of years mm-hmm. and so i don't know if we believe there's a reality that any other country could be number one or be, and what does that actually it's mean a, it's a big problem on the right and that, what does that mean to us even? so this um this idea of american exceptionalism we're just the best country that's ever existed period i agree with that i really do but the paradox is, if you only agree with that and you're not self-critical at all, you've kind of got your head in the sand and you ignore the decline. So I think it's too many too many people on the right. It's too easy for conservatives to just say, oh, we're the best country. And it's like, well, we've been going downhill for like 20, 25 years. And we don't have the best school system. And we don't have the highest uh, you know, median wages. And you know, we're getting involved in all these like, dumb wars. And yeah, our military, in some sense, is the strongest, but it's also kind of there's rot in there with the critical race theory and like the general core I think is, is woefully inadequate. And frankly, I think they're ruining the military. We're on track to be in a position where by 2030, we would lose a war with China. And so I think it's really hard for people on the right to admit that because wait, they're like, but this is the best country that's ever existed. How could this happen? And the lesson is, no, it is the best and understand why. But then you also have to do the work every single day, every every year, every generation to renew the institutions. If you just say, like, America is great and we don't have to do anything, well, you're going to lose the country. You know what I mean? It's like an excuse not to do anything. It's like California. It. Yeah, that's a big problem. And you could say, like, California, there'll be people when California is just, like, you know, crumbling even more than it is. There'll be people that says, like, oh, it's the best place because, like, yeah, it's, you have the beach and, like, California, there's always something to it. But no, it's like becoming a failed state. And I worry that America 
as a nation is becoming a failed state because people are taking it for granted. I really think that. And you could wake up in this place where now we're second to China and we just lost it by 2030. And I don't think that's just a, a comfortable, linearly managed decline. I think that actually gets really ugly geopolitically, which is why I think it's important to, uh, to stay on top almost in every respect. But it's uncomfortable because to, to do that, like in my campaign, like I'm criticizing the government so much. I'm criticizing all these cultural influences that are happening in our country. And so it can feel like I'm criticizing the country. But I actually think it's the logical thing to do. It's the kind thing to do. It's, the, it's just honest. It's like we are really at risk of losing almost everything in the next five or 10 years. If you know America, is like you, if, you, if you love it, then you've got to be willing to criticize it. And to me, it's the left that's driving this dysfunction. And so I'm interested in stopping that and uh, providing some alternative programming. And I think we can have a good American future, but only, like, damn it, only if we really put in the work, because it doesn't just happen by accident. You made me reflect on uh, that if we want to be great at anything, like anything in life, right? Like at a sport and work, and you don't just do it and then do it once. And you're like, okay, great. Right. You keep doing it. Like yeah. I've done 140 videos this year. I've done, I don't know. And a thousand podcasts, but it's interesting to think of it as a country, as an object. Uh, people, people have a really unintuitive sense of how, like, anyone who's really great at guitar, right? If you don't know that person, you haven't seen them play for like thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. You just see them and they're really good at it. And then, like, you're not good at it. So you're like, oh, that guy's good at guitar and I'm not. It's like, no, anyone who's really good at something has put in so much more work than people think. But it's culturally, we're losing this belief in that. We're losing this belief in like individual agency. It's like you can become great at not anything. You can't be Jimi Hendrix, but like you could become pretty damn good if you really just put in the work. And as a society, and too too often as individuals, now we're not putting in the work. Were you planning all in college? Were you planning to run for Congress? No. In college, I was even more uh, libertarian and anti-government. I mean, I'm anti-government now in the sense that like <laughs> government does a lot of bad things. You look at what's happening in the DOJ, the FBI, like. I mean, the DOJ is always bad. Like, I, I remember, like, when the Waco thing happened, I think it was eight years old, and I just couldn't understand, like, why the government lit a building on fire with, like, dozens of women and children in it. The story might be, like, a little bit more complicated, but not that much more complicated. So I've always had this, like, anti-state. The state can just squash individuals' sort of bias. But, um, yeah, I was, I, was, I was jaded, and I didn't think that politics mattered, and I thought it was just kind of... The Republicans were controlled opposition, and it just you couldn't change anything. But um, just being a little bit older, and I think I've gotten better and wiser, and then seeing what Trump was able to come along and do in 2016, and then as I've developed sort of my just skills and what I have to bring to the table, and you know, back in Arizona, and now it's like I can win this seat, and I'll be good at. It. So not something I expected to do. Yeah, I guess you got called. Here we are. Yeah. How can people help you the most? Follow me on Twitter, BG Masters, until they kick me off. Um, <laughs> funny, not funny, man. Funny, not funny. New yeah. CEO. I don't know. There's purging people. I think I lost a thousand followers last night in the great purge. There's some purge going on today. Who knows? They say they just remove bots, but I think they remove uh, ideologically. That's scary. Yeah. It's, All it's right. So bad. follow you on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, donate if you can, even five or 10 bucks. Like if you want to see someone do something new in politics, uh, that is what I'm doing. That is what I'm trying to do. So if you don't want everyone is my consultants, sometimes, uh, especially prior bad consultants that I interviewed, they'd give me these video scripts and it's like, Joe Biden is taking away your freedoms and Kamala Harris, you know, and it's like, yeah, I think Joe Biden is, but somehow if you run politicians that just do that and talk and sound by it, they, they do that. <laughs> they and teach you this because like, it's very easy to just look stupid. If you just like use your hands like a normal person and then like people will take photos of you. Like there's a reason everything is the way it is, but I think it's boring. I think it's bad. I think it leads to a really um, dysfunctional politics. So I'm out there trying to be a real person, um, actually speaking my mind on like real issues. And uh, I think I'll be quite effective when I win. I think it'll be, something new. So if you want to support that, please do five or 10 bucks or 5,800 bucks. Is that too? Yeah. Max. It's um, blakemasters.com. Blakemasters.com. Yeah. Awesome. I'll put it out there. Dude. Thank you. Well, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed hearing about behind the scenes of what it's like to run for politics in America. Check out Blake at blakemasters.com. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan. Let me know what you thought of this episode. It's definitely a little bit different, but I think there's a lot we can all learn from it. Also, remember to go subscribe to my newsletter. Also, remember to go subscribe to my email list. That's okdork.com. Finally, a couple of shouts to our amazing team. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for making these podcasts. 
Thank you to Mitchell, Jeremy, George, Hubert, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen. Damn, there's a lot of y'all. From the Dork Team for all the magic y'all do. And finally, shout out to the AppSumo email marketing team. Jessica, Chris, Camille, Victor, a bunch of you other people. They are so good emails. I love seeing it. If you want to learn just even about how to do email marketing, make sure you sign up at AppSumo.com. Have a marvelous day. What's your favorite childhood memory? (laughs) 